0: You know it's been said that comparison is the thief of joy, and I think it's right. I think we've experienced that. and I think one of the times at least I know in my life that comparison has strikes has, has struck the hardest it's when I find myself in seasons of struggle or seasons of suffering or, or seasons of weakness. My, uh, one of my mentors and Close pastor friends, Bob Bear, used to always say that you are either in a season of hard times now, you're coming out of a season of hard times, or you're getting ready to go into a season of hard times. And that's kind of discouraging for us to think about it and to hear. You know, I know when I was a kid, and maybe the same was for you guys, when I was a kid, I used to think that the older I got, the easier it would get. That, that things would just kind of fall in place and... You know, once you you get married and have kids or get a job and finally get a house, all these things, it's going to just get easier. But I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I realize how difficult life truly is. The more I see my friends struggle, the more I look around the world and I see hungry kids and evil things. And it's hard. And it makes you sometimes question all that's going on. And then when hard times hits my life, I start to look around at other people and I start to compare myself and I start to say, well, God, why am I going through this? Like, why is it me? Why is it not them? I look at somebody else's life or their Instagram family or whatever it may be, somebody across the aisle at work or in the classroom. And I think they seem to be so happy and things seem to be so good. Yet for me, it's a struggle. It's hard. My family's tough. My finances are messy. My health is a disaster. And when you find yourselves in these moments, sometimes it's really easy to, it's, it's really hard, I should say, to see God's goodness through the fog. William Blake was a poet and, uh, and, and, and an artist from England in the 18th and 19th centuries. And William Blake was fascinated with the Bible story, the, the Bible book of Job. So fascinated that he wrestled with this idea of God's goodness and joy, how joy and suffering are often woven together in life. And one of his life projects was with watercolor and later with sketching um, to really paint the picture of Job's life. Here's a picture of of Job and his family. If you're familiar with the Bible story of Job, it's an Old Testament book. It's before you get to the the Psalms and Proverbs. And the book of Job is really a challenging book of the Bible. It's also can be one of the most encouraging books of the Bible if we read it for what God has for us in it. But in the book of Job, it's really challenging because we, we see a guy who had everything often he would be the guy that you would look at across the aisle at work and go, man, I wish I had his life. I mean, he had a, he had a great family, he had a large family. He was healthy. He was successful. He had everything you could imagine that you want. And then in an instant, he lost everything. If you know the story of Job, you know that uh, he, he refused to, to curse God, but he, he wanted to know why. He, he even lost his health. Here's a sketch that William Blake did about Job, when he had boils on his skin. And at this point, Job cries out to God and says, God, I want to know why. What did I do? Why why do I have to go through this suffering and this hardship and these trials when things were so good in my life? You know, I I think sometimes, I don't know about you, but I I know when we find ourselves in moments of suffering, moments of hardship and moments of struggle, we do ask that question. We said, God, why? God, why? Why did you allow me to go through this? Why are you letting these things impact my life? Why am I having to walk through these hard times of struggle when other people aren't? And, and you know, it's interesting. Have you ever asked yourself that question, why? Why is this happening to me? You know, religion has tried to answer that question. And I don't mean Christianity. I, mean, I think Christianity's done this. I mean just religion in general every religion has tried to to say well the reason you are suffering the reason you're going through seasons of struggle is because of something you have done you didn't have enough faith or you didn't have enough trust or or, or whatever now sometimes our suffering is a consequence because of bad decisions and bad mistakes but not always now the 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 kind of the secular answer to that question is well there really is no reason you're going through this right and, and since you're going through struggle, why would a good God let you go through that? And so secular, uh, and a secular answer would say, well, then God must not exist or he must not be good if you're going through struggle. Because why would a good God let you experience those hard things? But neither of those answers are good answers. And neither of those answers as to why this is happening to me are, are what we find in God's words for why we do walk through hard times. Job, when Job was walking through hard times, he talked to his wife and his wife said, you just need to curse God and die. Thanks, honey. I like this. pretty encouraging response. Job talks to his friends and his friends are like, dude, you did something wrong. You need to repent and you need to confess and you need to change your life. And Job goes, but I didn't. I don't think I did. And so he calls out to God, God, why? God, answer me. God, tell me why. Some of you might feel like Job now. Some of you might be in a season now where it's hard, where there's a lot of heartache, where you're you're suffering or you're experiencing weakness or you're experiencing struggle of, of many different kinds. And you might feel like Job and your question is, God, I don't know why. And so we answer We ask these questions and we wait for answers and we go through valleys and peaks of discouragement. But what if I told you that in the struggle and in the the, the difficulty and in the suffering and the weakness that you're experiencing right now, God actually wants to reveal something to you that is beautiful, that is deep, and that is so rich. Something that he wants to share with you today that can carry you through the season that you're in. We've been in a series that we're calling The Great Exchange, and we're talking about how Jesus exchanged things for us by coming to earth as a baby in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. We saw that Jesus exchanged, he traded heaven for earth so he could be near us, he could bring God's presence to us. He traded heaven for humanity so he could trade places with us. And today, I want us to see another reason that Jesus came. If you have your Bibles, grab those. We're gonna be in Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four is interesting because we we find Jesus as he's starting his ministry. And Jesus, he goes and he gets baptized. He gets tempted. We talked about temptation last week. He gets tempted for our sake so he can overcome where we failed. And then we see that he goes out, he starts preaching. So Jesus goes out, he starts preaching and and he goes to town, to town and he starts talking about the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And people start to say, who is this guy? Some some people are saying, well, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the the brother of James and, and Jude? Other people are like, isn't this the carpenter? So Jesus, he goes back home to Nazareth. This is where Jesus grew up, where people knew him. And Jesus' custom was that he would go to the synagogue on Saturdays, and he would often read the scroll. And I want you to see what Luke tells us in Luke chapter four, starting in verse 14. It says this, and Jesus, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and when it was his, as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he, he stood up to read. And the scroll, scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, he didn't go rummage through and find Isaiah. He didn't pull it up on version on his phone. It was given to him. Now, notice this. This is how God works at the right time in the right place. The scroll of Isaiah is given to him. Now, remember back in the day, you would go into a, a Jewish synagogue and this is how early church worked too before they, the printing press and they started binding. They would have like a, a cylinder with scrolls in it. And so you would grab the scroll and imagine Isaiah is like 63 chapters long. So Isaiah is, that's a thick scroll and you would roll it. You guys seen some old school Renaissance like movies, right? You unroll it and you read it. So Like he's going to unroll to a particular spot. Jesus, again, he's God. He knew what he was doing, right? He he rolls right to the the place he needs to. And so he's standing up in front of the synagogue. He's got this, I don't know if it was like this or like this, but he's got it in front of him. I want you to notice what he reads. Notice what he reads. He says this. He finds a spot in Isaiah where it was written. And it said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says he rolled the scroll back up, hands it back to the attendant. And, and, and notice what it says in verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the tenant, and he sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue was fixed on him. And he began to say to them, so, he, you know, he's sitting back in his seat, you know, his leg crossed, right? And then he says this. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Crickets, right? Just in the room, everybody's looking at him. If you've seen The Chosen, this is a super cool episode. If you haven't seen The Chosen, you're missing out. You need to go watch it. So Jesus in this moment saying to them, this is a prophecy that Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus, prophesying that God's anointed one would come and, and save the people of their sins. And so here is Jesus saying, I am he and I am here. You know, at Christmas time, we, 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 we come to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We call it Advent. Advent means coming so we come to celebrate the advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. And we, we sing these beautiful songs and we reflect on this beautiful reality that God came to bring us his presence and his light. He came to trade places with us. But one of the things we see here in Luke four is that Jesus came to bring and to trade his strength for our weakness. Somebody say strength. Jesus came to bring strength for our weakness for when we are weak. See, there's this reality I think that we all we all face in life is that when struggling hits, when suffering and weakness hits, we always want to try to come up with a quick solution, right? Like anybody just likes going through seasons of suffering like something's wrong, right? <laughs> you know, masochist. Like you none of us just want to live in hard seasons. We want quick fixes. We, get, we live in a microwave culture. We want something to do to, to fix it now. God, take this away from me now. Please. I want to pray once and it be done with. But what if what God wants to bring you, the gift he wants to give you in the midst of your suffering and weakness is struggle. Isn't a quick fix, but instead it's him. There's a really interesting story in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The, the apostle Paul gets really real for a moment. So, some of you know about the apostle Paul. He was uh, a missionary. Paul was one that planted churches. He he wrote uh, two thirds of our New Testament. The apostle Paul was a guy that, if you looked at his life, it seemingly everything he touched turned to gold. He he planted churches and he he wrote letters and he became a very famous person in the church. And it, it seemed like everything he did went right when you look at it on the surface level. And I think it's a misconception because if you look back at the life that Paul lived, Paul experienced a lot of struggle. And sometimes that doesn't make sense to us. We go, okay, hold on. So, so God, if I'm doing good things, then why am I not getting blessed with health and wealth and, and fast cars? Why am I struggling with all these challenging things, but I think it shows us something that God is not in a world of exchanging good for good. God is in a world of loving his people from the beginning to the end. We don't earn God's favor by doing good things, but we obediently follow God no matter what comes our way because we know that he is with us. And so if you look at the story of Paul, it's really interesting, especially in the book of Acts, we'll see Paul talk about he, he had shipwrecks. He spent a day floating in the ocean Anybody ever, anybody love sharks, right? Like, like hey, let's go for, for a 24-hour float in the Mediterranean. He got stoned to death and left for dead in Lystra. He got beaten up. He got imprisoned. He got falsely accused. did all these things. But what's really interesting about Second Corinthians chapter 12 is that Paul gives us a glimpse into kind of his journey of struggle and suffering in something he called a thorn of the flesh. Some of you might have read this before, the, the Paul called it a thorn of the flesh. It was something that tormented him. The, the word that Paul actually uses for thorn isn't thorn. Like you think of rose, a rose bush, right? You cut it, it's like, ow, right? A little thorn. But the word that Paul uses for thorn is tent stake, right? Like, so this was not just like a little, ooh. This was like a, ah. And so he, he talks about this thorn in the flesh. Now, he doesn't tell us what it is. We don't, we don't know what it is. And scholars have theorized, was it migraines? Was it malaria? two different things, right? Was it, you know, some kind of an eye issue? Uh, Was it a speech impediment? We don't know, but we do know is that Paul says that he has this interaction with God that's really interesting and that he prays to God to take away the thorn. And it says that he prayed to God three times. God, take away this thorn in my flesh. It is tormenting me. It is causing me agony. So we know this wasn't just some inconvenience for Paul. This was a big deal. This was true suffering that Paul was experiencing. And so Paul goes and he asks God, and I want you to notice what God says back to him. It says, this is the guy that you think God would be like, sure, take care care of it. But God has something deeper to teach Paul because he wants to teach it to you and me. See, the reality of life is they're suffering. We're either in it now, it's coming, or we're walking out of it. And And you can look at somebody else's life and you can compare yourself to them and say, man, that Instagram family seems to have all the fun. They seems to have that, that they're just as much of a mess as we are. Like the reality is suffering and struggle and heartache are a part of life. My favorite professor that Troy and I had back in the seminary, Dr. Tomlinson would highlight persecution in his Bible and suffering. And he would go, Hey guys, look, there's red on every page. It doesn't matter what book you're in. Suffering is real. Hardship is real. And so I think God lets Paul experience this for you and for me. And notice what he says. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, and God says to me, my grace is sufficient. Somebody say sufficient. sufficient. Means enough. My grace is enough for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's not what you would have thought God would have said to Paul. But God was Paul, teaching Paul something really beautiful that in our weak moments, God's power is what we need. In our struggle, God's grace is enough. Grace is an interesting idea. Anybody here ever kind of wondered, like, what really is grace? Like, how how many of you ever thought, you know, I love this idea. The Bible talks a lot about grace, right? Paul says, for you are saved by grace through faith. We, we see things like uh, God's grace will abound, that, that Jesus was the, 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 the image of God, that when Jesus came, John 1, that he was full of grace and truth. And so grace sounds like, it's, man, it sounds great. I really want it. I don't know what it is, really. But it sounds amazing. I want more of it. But it's, I think it's okay to, uh, to, to, to be real and be like, I'm not really sure what grace is. What truly is grace? Any, any, anybody here loves Star Wars besides Ron? You may here watch the, the movie, the show Kenobi, Obi-Wan Kenobi. There's this scene. If you don't know the show, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Ben, is watching after little Leia, right? This is when Leia and Luke were little. If you don't know who Leia and Luke are, you got a lot of work to do. <laughs> so he's having a talk with, with Leia about the forest, and um, Leia asked him, the que- asked him the question about the forest. And she, she asks him, she says, well, Ben, she doesn't know it's Obi-Wan Kenobi. She thinks his name's Ben. She says, well, Ben, how, how does it work? The force, what does it feel like? And Ben says, well, have you ever been afraid of the dark? She nods. And and then he says, well, how does it feel when you turn on the light? She says, I feel safe. He says, well, that's what it feels like. What does God's grace feel like? You ever been afraid of the dark? How does it feel when you turn the light on? You feel safe? That's what God's grace can feel like. like. God's grace... It is something that it's it's like the wind. It's hard to 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 grab, but you know it's you know it's there. C.S. Lewis famously said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. And often it's in those moments of struggle and in our moments of pain that we can sense God's grace is, is with us. It's like we turn on the light. That God's grace is there. It's it's the light comes on, and all of a sudden you can feel safe when you're reminded. I, I imagine the apostle Paul sitting right here, and God says to him, Look again at verse 9. It says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And I assume in that moment, Paul's been praying for God to take away that thorn of the flesh, and all of a sudden it's like the darkness gets lifted, the light comes on, and Paul goes, Okay. Okay, your power is made perfect. In my weakness, God, your grace turns on the light in the darkness. I think one thing we can pull out of this is that it says that God's grace is, or that grace is God's supernatural provision for every need right when we need it. Like it's your provision for your need when you need it. Sometimes we say, God, I want to know that everything's going to be okay. I want everything to be fine in the future. And I want you to just take care of all my problems. And God goes, hold on. Let's focus on right now. That's what he's talking to Paul about. My grace is enough for you right now, right in this moment that you need it. Let's not worry about tomorrow or two years from now or two decades from now. Let's focus on right now. In Matthew 8, there's a, a really cool exchange. So Jesus is on the mountain. He's, he's, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's telling us about what it looks like to live in the 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 um, kingdom of God. And then he comes down from the mountain immediately he starts having people come up to him. So in Matthew eight, a leper comes up to him, a leper with skin disease. And the leper says, Jesus, if you're willing, make me clean. And Jesus said, I'm willing to be clean. And his leprosy has gone. Next step, a centurion comes up to him and a centurion would have been someone who would have been a Roman soldier who had a lot of people under his rank. And the centurion is like, Jesus, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. He's sick. He's going to die. And Jesus goes, okay, let's go see him. And he goes, no, 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 I believe that you can heal him from here. And so Jesus goes, okay, well, what what you want be done for you and your servant will be healed. And he finds out later on the way back that his servant was healed the moment Jesus said, let him be healed. Jesus goes into Peter's house. Peter was the one disciple that we know was married. And so he goes into Peter's house and Peter's wife's mom is lying in bed sick with a fever. Now they don't have Tylenol or ibuprofen, right? This is, this is AD like 28. And so at, at this point, Fever, I mean, fever can kill you today, but it could really kill you back then. And Jesus goes in and, and heals your fever right then. And it says that in Capernaum, everybody starts bringing their sick and their lame and their deaf and their blind and people with skin diseases and and, and and disabilities. And Jesus is healing them. And then it quotes Isaiah. Jesus comes to heal those who are ill, to bring strength to those who are weak. And, and so, we see this beautiful picture that sometimes Jesus does heal you right on the spot, right when you need it. No doubt that leper was sick for a long time, but he encountered Jesus and Jesus healed him right at that moment. He didn't say, oh, here's what you do. Go home, take a bath in Epsom salt once a week for six weeks. And then, you know, he didn't do any of that kind of stuff. Instead, he heals him right when he needs it. The guy from Capernaum, his who knows how long his, his servant was laying paralyzed, but he came and he encountered Jesus. Jesus gives us provision for what we need right when we need it. But here's the realities. The reality is that sometimes God doesn't supernaturally heal you when you ask. Sometimes there's waiting. Sometimes it takes a long time. Like with Paul, didn't sound like he ever had the thorn of the flesh Not always is God's response in Jesus to heal. Sometimes the response of Jesus is simply to live through his strength. Notice the whole verse of verse nine. It says this, he says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made in perfect in weakness. Notice what Paul says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. What? He's gonna boast? He's gonna be, celebrating his weakness? Why would he do that? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul realized that if he had his little problem healed, that it would be good, but by Jesus giving him the strength to live out his problem, his tent stake in the flesh, then God's power is gonna be made more evident and the result is gonna be more beautiful and more real and more powerful than he could imagine on his own. Don't miss this, guys. Don't miss this. Paul had to believe that God's grace was sufficient by believing that he was insufficient. See, sometimes we think, okay, God, your your grace is good. And we're almost like God's grace is just the cherry on top, right? Go get ice cream. Let me get a little whipped cream, a little hot fudge, and a cherry on top, right? We're like, well, I'll just take care of all these things on my own, and God, your grace is just going to get me over the hump. No, God wants you to empty the cup so he can fill it with cherries. That'd be pretty good, actually feel like cherries. God wants to give you his grace, but to give you his grace, that's gonna be power in weakness and strength in weakness. You have to basically realize that you are insufficient, that you don't have it on your own. And so notice 10, this is so good. Notice 10. So so Paul says, I'm gonna be content in my weakness so God's power can be seen through me. And he says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Man, isn't that that amazing? That mental shift that Paul makes when he realizes I don't have to have all my problems fixed because I know that in my weakness, God is good. He is good and he's gonna carry me through. I think there's a reality here when we talk about suffering and we talk about struggle is that sometimes God wants to use suffering in our lives to, to grow us closer to him. Sometimes, God wants to use the suffering in our life to help us learn how to follow him better. Sometimes God wants to use the suffering in our life for a season to help us strengthen others to be able to say, you know what? I went through that same thing and here's how I learned to rest and trust in the grace of God. And sometimes God is just teaching us using the brokenness of a sinful world around us to learn to rely on his strength because we won't ever have the strength on our own. But here's the reality. Whatever reason God's allowing it, he is making it possible for you to truly experience joy in the midst of your suffering. Now, Somebody in this room hears that and thinks, yeah, right. You haven't been in my shoes. You don't understand the suffering I'm going through. You don't understand how hard it is to watch somebody I love go through this. You don't understand how hard it is for me to go through this health issue. You don't understand, and it's true, I don't. But God does. And Jesus is telling you, he's speaking to you today and he's telling you that I am enough, that my grace is enough, that my provision is enough. Don't worry about tomorrow, worry about today because what I give you today is enough. It doesn't matter what this situation is. As Paul says, hardships or persecutions or calamities or a thorn in the flesh, God says, my grace is going to be enough. Really interesting story in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter three, we meet this crazy king named King Nebuchadnezzar. Somebody say Nebi. Nebi. We're going to call him Nebi. So you meet King Nebi and King Nebuchadnezzar was leading Babylon. Babylon was wiping out all these nations. They beat Israel, they beat Judah and they bring them captive back to Israel. And what they would often do is they would take young men from those nations they conquered and they would raise them up to be advisors in the court. And so they did that from the Jewish men. And there was three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or as we like to call them, Shad, Shack, and Abe, easier. And Shad, Shack, and Abe, they worshiped the God of the Bible. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar decides it's a good idea to make a giant golden statue of himself and ask everybody to bow down and worship. Well, Shad, Shack, and Abe decided they didn't want to do that. And so what happens is, the advisors tell Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar gets mad. He gets furious actually. And he brings Shad, Shak, and Abe in front of him. And he says, I hear you're not bowing down to me. If you don't bow down to me, I'm gonna throw you in the fiery furnace and you're gonna lose your life. And it's really interesting. The, the faith, the, the crazy trust that they have is they look at the king. This is the king who defeated their entire nation, who has the power to kill them on the spot. And they say, look, King Nebi, If you throw us in there, our God's going to take care of us. And even if he doesn't, we can't bow down to your statue. We worship God and God alone. And so Nebuchadnezzar gets so mad. He tells his guards to heat up the furnace to seven times its normal heat. It's so hot that the guards that are heating it up die. They burn. So then they take Shad, Shaq, and Abe, and they bind them, and they throw them in this furnace. It's so hot. In this furnace, that the moment, anything inside of it touches, it just singes. And so they throw them in. And then notice this, verse 24, Daniel 3, verse 24. It says this. It says that, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. And he says this, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Shadrach and Abe, right? We threw them in the fire. And they said, true, O king. And the answer, he said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar and his guards looked in that fire, and they didn't just see Shadshak and Abe. They saw a fourth person walking with them. And it says they're walking around. It's like they're in there singing, dancing in the moonlight or something, right? Who was that fourth person? I think we're left to assume that it was Jesus that pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, the son of God who spoke all things into existence, who would later come and be born in a manger as a baby to go live a life and give his life for you on the cross, went into the furnace with them. That's his great promise, that God is with you. That when you're in the midst of the suffering and the struggle and the heartache, that God is with you. That Jesus is right by your side, no matter what it is you are experiencing. He is right there with you every single moment. It's what Paul understood, and this is what he wants us to understand. Psalm 34 says that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It was like what C.S. Lewis said earlier, God shouts to us in our pain. And if we would listen, if we would lean closer and understand that, we can experience the beautiful reality that God can give us joy, even in the most unhappy of circumstances. See, see, guys, if you're like me, here's the reality. We want answers. We do. We, we want answers. We want to know why things are happening in our lives that, that the way they are. We, we, we want to, to know that everything is going to be okay, but Jesus is telling us I am with you. And how do we know we can trust him? When Jesus says that I am with you, that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you, how do we know we can trust him? Because look what he did for us already. Jesus stepped into the creation that he created and took on the weight of it. He was tempted. He spent 40 days in the desert without eating. The Bible says he was hungry. Yeah. And then he faces all the temptations that we'd ever face and wins them all. He gets arrested. He gets falsely accused. He gets beaten. He gets a crown of thorns placed on his head, grinded in on his skull. He gets flogged within an inch of his life. And then he goes to the cross and, and He dies a criminal's death, and in that moment, he has the weight of the world on his shoulders, the sin of the world on his back. He feels God's presence leave him, and he says, God, why have you forsaken me? The weight of your sin, my sin, all of our sins on his back, past, present, future, at that moment was crushing. And he gave his life for us. Jesus suffered, he struggled, he endured weakness. And he did it for you. So let me ask you this. If Jesus would do all that for you, why would he leave you now? If Jesus would do all that for you, why would he not be with you now in your struggle and in your heartache and in your suffering? And the good news is that resurrection power that rose Jesus from the grave, which on the third day he walked out of the tomb, it is now the same power that he gives to you in your weakness. That is why Paul says, I can be content in my weakness because I know the power of God resides in me. And that has the power to carry you through every single moment of every single day of struggle and difficulty and challenge. But the reality is, guys, we will never experience God's strengths in our weaknesses as long as Jesus is just an acquaintance to us. We experience God's strength in our weakness when we truly know him. When I was about eight, my grandma for Christmas bought me a guitar. Don't worry, I'm not gonna sing and play a song. But I was about eight, my grandma bought me a guitar. I called her this week and said, Well, you remember what kind of guitar that was? What year was that? It was like 1989. It's like a $30 guitar from JCPenney's catalog. But I was so excited when I got that guitar. And I remember I, I got that guitar and I immediately wanted to take lessons. And I started taking lessons. And if anybody that's ever played the guitar knows, your first lesson hurts. Fingers hurt, you're mad all you want to do is Jimi Hendrix and light the guitar on fire (laughs) because it's hard. So I quit. Then she talked me into taking lessons again. And then I quit. And she talked me into taking lessons again. And then I quit again, right? You know, and as I was thinking back about this, it it sort of reminds me of faith, doesn't it? Like in our faith, when, when suffering and struggle come, we often quit easy because it's hard. It's like taking lessons with an instrument. It's like, well, I, I've tried, God. It's not working. God, I've prayed to you. I, I've read the Bible. I've tried to seek you, God, and you haven't fixed my problem yet. So I'm just, I'm going to quit. And then we try again. And then we quit. But something really interesting. As I got back into taking lessons again, I was about 12, I decided I was going to stick with it. So I started taking lessons again. I started actually going in week by week and doing the brutal, boring things they had me do. And I remember one day I was sitting in my room at nighttime and I just remember something clicked. I was like, whoa, that was cool. I could even play bar chords. And then all of a sudden I started to realize, okay, I'm starting to get this. The next thing you know, you can actually start playing songs. And I think the reality is the same when it comes to our faith. See, when we just give up, we're treating Jesus like an acquaintance. But when we take the time and we spend the time praying, we spend the time reading, being near, Jesus begins to lift the fog as we spend the time committed to getting to know him, to spend time to getting to be real with him, he begins to reveal to us that he is there, that he is near, and that he has always been the entire time. We just weren't looking for him. So the end of the story of Job, Job finds himself asking God, God, where are you? God, I can't see you. God, why am I here? And God shows up to Job in a whirlwind, in a storm. Here's the picture William Blake drew. So God shows up in this whirlwind, in this storm, and Job has been asking, God, where are you? I want to know, what did I do? Tell me what I did that was wrong. And you know what God does? God doesn't tell him anything to do with that. God doesn't answer his question at all. But what God reminds Job is that, Job, I am in control. But you want to know what's interesting? In Job's story, in the midst of all that Job was doing, in in his pursuit of trying to find an answer from God, he never stopped praying even when he was dry. He never stopped calling out to God even when God didn't seem to answer. He doubted, but he doubted to God. He screamed and yelled, but he did it in God's presence. And no matter how much agony Job experienced, He experienced it in the presence of God. So God answers Job in a whirlwind and God says, Job, I'm here and I'm in control. And Job realized at that moment that God cares and that God was near. And notice Job's words, his final words. He says this, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then notice this, this is so good. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the year, meaning that I heard about you. I, I knew about you. I followed you. But he says, now my eye sees you. Job says, you know, I, I had, you were an acquaintance to me. I'd heard of you, but now I know you. And I know that you are with me in the midst of my struggle and in my pain and my hardship. And so therefore I can stand up and I can live my life and I can do all that you've called me to do because Jesus, you are with me. And Job went on to live the rest of his life in a beautiful way. See, for here's what I want us to take home. As we spent time in this Advent series, we've talked about how Jesus traded heaven for earth. And so our, our, our challenge was to go seek his presence. And then we talked about how Jesus traded heaven for humanity and traded places with us. And so our our response was to praise him for that. But as we think about the hard times in our our life, we can see that Jesus came and traded his strength for our weakness. And so our response is to prayerfully pursue him. No matter how dark it is right now, no matter how difficult it is right now, prayerfully pursue Jesus. Jesus no matter how much you want to scream, no matter how frustrated you are, no matter how quiet God seems that he is to you, prayerfully pursue Jesus. When you feel dry, go to Jesus. When you feel sad, go to Jesus. And something beautiful will happen. The fog will lift and the light will turn on and you will sense the fact Jesus' promises are always true. Because he is always there. So, forefront, he's just asking you to come to him. And as you do, Paul's words will ring true that God is working all things together for good, for your good, and for his glory. Would you pray with me?